Perfect. Well, Redeemer, it's good to be back. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, it is this past weekend, me and my wife spent the last 36 hours with a couple hundred middle schoolers at Great Wolf Lodge. Um, so last night and yesterday was long. However, please be praying with me um, as over 200 kids are hearing the gospel. They heard it last night and they heard it this morning. And so um, in Young Life, we call our middle school ministry Wildlife, um, as you can understand why. But um, those kids, many of those kids do not know Jesus. Many of those kids do not know anything about the church. And this is their first time hearing about um, this man named Jesus. So um, it's a pleasure to have served them in that capacity. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll dig in and I will be back to my seat. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, for your goodness and mercy towards us, Father. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you for your Spirit that seals that work for us. So now, Lord, would you come now in this moment, and would you help me to preach your word? Would you help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth? What is not of me, would it fall off? And would you meet your people in this moment? Amen. Our text today is from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting in verse 13, ending in verse 17. And I'll go ahead and read that for us. I'm reading from the ESV. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the, tradition, to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. His name was Frank Lloyd Wright. Mr. Wright was a renowned American architect, philosopher, and writer during the first half of the 20th century. His resume consisted of more than 1,000 designs, architecture designs. 500 of those were actually completed and constructed. But one of his most remarkable designs, which came in 1923, was the Imperial Hotel located in Tokyo, Japan. It was a project that took over four years to complete. But what is most fascinating about this project was its supposed impossibility. This proposed lot of land this building was to be constructed on was located in a land of earthquakes and terrible tremors. Basically, this brother was trying to build a house on water. 
The location he was given was one of instability. It possessed a weak foundation due to its continual shifting of plate tectonics. But nonetheless, Mr. Wright pressed on. After carefully reviewing his situation, he found that eight feet below the surface lay a 60-foot bed of soft mud. So why not float the great structure on this and in some way make it absorb the shock of a supposed earthquake? How that works, I have no idea, but Mr. Wright figured it out. See, after four years of work, amid ridicule and jeers and criticism, people laughing at him and saying, you're a fool. This most difficult building in the world was completed. And soon after the day which it was completed, its biggest test arrived. The worst earthquake in 52 years had come and leveled its surroundings. But what stood was that hotel. Both Frank and his building stood their ground amidst, intense, amidst a tense situation, critique, criticism, doubt, and pressure. But friends, what I'm here to suggest to you this morning is simply that. When the critics, the haters, the naysayers come to your door, the people of God must remember the foundation of their faith. It was the foundation of that building that kept that building upright. The same is true for you. It is the foundation of your faith that keeps you upright. See, here in our passage, Paul is having to deal with just that. He's writing to a church that is in the same predicament. Some folks have come in. Some haters have entered the room. And they are doubting this person called Jesus. They are doubting that he would actually even come back. They want us to believe, the, they want the, this Thessalonian church to believe that you are with no hope. There is no second coming of the Lord. So it required him to send a word of encouragement and exhortation on how to respond when these things happen. See, Jesus isn't just a fairy tale. He isn't a tool of manipulation. He's real. He's hope. And he's for you. See, the hope that the Advent brings, as we have talked about this morning, is a reality. And many of us right now need that hope. Oh, but what about you, Redeemer? Is this the world you live in? Do you live in a place where there is nothing but doubts and wonders and criticism and skepticism about your faith? Do you wonder if Jesus will come back and right all wrongs? Will there be joy coming to the world? Will hope instill your hearts? Maybe for some of you, the gospel has lost its potency in your life. Its power is fleeting. It's no longer apparent in your situation. Life has sort of worn you down. It's made you numb. Good news is now boring news. 
The noise of Cincinnati, the world around you has become so overwhelming, it drowns out God's voice. It is Christmas season after all, right? This is the merry season. This is the joyful season. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. You look out into the world, everyone, culture is trying to mitigate the idea of Christ and Christmas. Happy holidays. Have a jolly old time. No, this time is about a Savior to come. Maybe it's your friends, your family, your co-workers. They gossip behind your back. They call you the Jesus freak because you still believe in that age-old notion. Well, friends, Paul lays out three foundations for us to remember when these things come to our doorstep. The first is this. Remember that God chose you. You didn't choose him. See, Paul in verse 13 is provoking a side of God's nature that is essential to the Christian faith. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. I like the NIV translation a little better. It's God chose you from the beginning. See, that communicates a sort of uh, God had you in mind before you were even here. The salvation that came to your house was a salvation that was always coming to your house. In fact, everything that you have to offer falls drastically short of God's glory. Therefore, you couldn't choose him. There is nothing inherently good about you that would allow you to choose God. No, God chose you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you did, everything you're doing now, and everything you're going to do. And what did he do? He still chose you. Paul said it best in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God do such a thing? Because he loves you. He loved you before you even knew what love was. See, this isn't puppy love or you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that says you can't get rid of me. You can't run away. You can wallow in your mess and I'm still going to love you in it. It's the kind of love that says no matter the circumstance, the transgression, I love you. I don't care how messy, complicated, dirty you may look, dirty you may seem, my love isn't going anywhere. This is what it means to be chosen by God and to be beloved by him. Friends, this is the good news because it ought to tell you that you can't mess up what isn't yours. Your salvation isn't dependent upon you. It's on God. That ought to give us a, a, a feeling of gratitude, thankfulness. See, you ought to be thanking Jesus every day for what he has done on your behalf. But maybe you're here this morning, you, you have 
little to be thankful for. Maybe you're having a little trouble identifying God's grace in your life. You woke up this morning. You put on clothes this morning. You might have even had some breakfast. I would assume you probably slept in a bed and a roof over your head. You made it to church this morning. Do not let the world tell you you have nothing to be thankful for. Every breath you breathe, every cup of Starbucks you drink, every color you see with your eyes, every step you take is reason to be thankful. The fact that you were saved from your sin is reason to be thankful. It ought to give you an eternal gratitude because your life has changed and it had nothing to do with you. It's for this reason that Paul starts this section with a word of thanks. He doesn't thank his friends. He doesn't thank himself. He thanks God for what God has done on behalf of his people. No one can take away what Jesus has done for you. The world cannot offer you the redemption that Christ does. Money cannot give you this type of security. Relationships cannot promise, promise you this. Your job cannot save you. Your education cannot save you. Jesus saves you. Church, you must be thankful because God chose you. Oh, but the gospel doesn't stop there. No, it doesn't. Secondly, the gospel does not keep us where we are. Here's where it gets good. See, the gospel is more than just a one-time moment or an event that happens in your life. It contains a power that is transformative. It is restless. It's contagious. It changes everything it touches. When you come into a relationship with Jesus, something radically is happening to you. Something radically happens to you in a moment. And it continues for the rest of your life. It turns tragedy into triumph. Ruins into beauty. Bondage. Excuse me, freedom into freedom from bondage. This is the idea that Paul is conveying in verse 14. Look with me. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God in his providence, before you and I even got here, saved you with a purpose. He saved you from something, and then he saved you to something. See, this happens both instantly and over time. Paul is telling us that when God called you out of darkness into light, he did so with a goal for you to become just like him. See, some scholars translate their original Greek to say, share in his glory. Here in the ESV, it says, you may obtain the glory. I would argue for the former. Here's why. Because I think it captures the idea that something is happening to you right now in this moment. 
The gospel meets you exactly where you are. In that same sad predicament where you heard about the good news of Jesus, the gospel met you there. But then over time, it moves us forward. How so, you may be asking? Great question. How does one actually become like Jesus on this side of heaven? By the power of his Holy Spirit. See, if you read it too fast, you may miss it. Don't miss it. See, Paul gives us the main ingredients that bring about such change. It's through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. See, the the, the power that birthed Jesus, healed the sick, brought sight to the blind, raised Lazarus from the dead, and then future raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that dwells in you. Let that sink in. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. See, in John 16, Jesus told us what we needed. He said, it's to my benefit that I leave you because my helper is on the way. That's his spirit. God is at work in your life. The soul that clings to the spirit and truth is the soul that will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. My wife makes a great honey garlic shredded chicken dish. It's one of my favorite recipes. She begins with two whole chicken breasts, frozen, pale, uncooked, some honey and some garlic. Pretty simple. Not too, not too fancy, it's just simple ingredients. She then puts all this in a crock pot. She puts it on a low simmer, and she lets it sit. After a while, you forget that, it, that it's even cooking. It's just, you know how crock pots go. They just, they're silent. <laughs> Stuff sit there. Eight hours later, voila, something delicious is happening. That's what happens. She puts that chicken in there. She puts some honey, some garlic. Eight hours later, I got my favorite meal. See, what was once two pale, raw pieces of chicken is now a savory, tender, warm, delicious meal. See, that chicken needed an incubator of sorts to change it completely. It also needed time and a few ingredients. The Holy Spirit works the same way. It's our spiritual incubator that tenderizes us over time in order to make us look more like Jesus. While belief in God's word, the truth, those are the ingredients that give us a new flavor, a new smell, a new way of living. See, sanctification isn't just a suggestion from God, but it's a promise. And slowly over time, through the work of his spirit, We become something glorious. We share in the glory of Jesus Christ. That's not a what if or what could be. That's your future. That is the predicament you will be in. The gospel is incapable of keeping you where you are because of the power of his spirit. 
But, of course, here we are. We don't know when that time will come. So what are we to do? What does the gospel say about our situation right now? Lastly, you won't make it without Jesus. So hold on to him. When the noise is crowding in, when the doubters are pointing at you and wagging their finger, hold on to Jesus. The imperative is clear here. So then, brothers, verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by either our spoken word or by our letter. See, until the return of Christ, life will be up and down. It will go in many directions. There will always be strange narratives, ideologies, skepticisms, and so-called truths. There will always be haters and naysayers. There will always be those who say you're a fool to believe in that thing called Christianity and God. They will tell you you're misinformed. Fake news. But where there is bad, there is good. I like it. I, I like the feedback, okay? The, the more you talk, the faster I sit down. That, that's how it works. Paul is commanding us to hold on to the gospel he preached, not to those of your critics. See, the gospel he preached was Christ crucified. That, that, that's, the, that's the essence of Paul's theology. It's not new. You read the New Testament, you see the same thing over and over. Christ crucified. Christ crucified on your behalf. The message doesn't get old. The message doesn't change. What was true then is true now. Hold to the traditions you were taught. It is the gospel that says God came down from heaven, looked in on your desperate situation, and stepped into it. I don't know any other message in this world that can claim that. When you have figured it out, please let me know. I don't know any other sustaining hope we have other than Christ crucified. If, if there was something else, then everyone would be happy and joyful. But I don't think that's the case, if we're honest. Every day we wake up and we want more and more. We wake up angst, depressed, unsatisfied. Jesus is telling us because what you want, what you want the most, what you so mostly desire is me. It's the gospel that's, that Isaiah prophesied about and said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Boy, let's help me preach. Please. 
This is who you hold on to. This is what you need. When Paul says to stand firm, you're standing firm on the wounds of Jesus. You didn't go to that cross. Jesus did it for you. What a message. Oh, what a message. It's the gospel that says in three days he rose again and reigns victorious. victorious. Hold to this tradition, church. See, Jesus does more than that, though. What does he do for us in the moment? See, Jesus can say this perfectly. No one else can. He says, you know what? I know exactly what you're going through. He says, you know what? I feel exactly what you feel. Betrayal? I get it. I felt it. Hurt? I got that one too. Sadness? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Pain? I got that on my back. In this very moment, Jesus is our great sympathizer. But not only does he sympathize, he empathizes with us. See, this can be a whole cold and harsh world. But thank God we have a friend in Jesus. Paul is simply reminding us to stay, simply reminding us in order to stay firm, you have to be connected to something firm. So what do so many of us Christians forget to do? We forget to pray. See, Paul prays for the God, uh, for God the Father and Christ himself to be our eternal comfort and good hope. Paul is saying to us, don't forget the basics. Life will hit you if it hasn't already. Life will get hard. You, you can figure out, you can continue to do the gimmicky things. You can go for the money, go for the relationships. You can do all the things that the world has to offer that you think will keep you upright. Paul is saying, no. The Christian Christian life is one of simplicity. God works through us in ordinary ways. More often than not, it is the simple things that get us through. Prayer gets us through. Now, I get it. I know what it's like to go day after day, to feel like nothing has changed, to be in the grind of life, stuck in a rut spiritually. You may have just lost your job, a loved one. Your marriage is hanging on by a string. Your children are struggling, and you have no answers. Praying is the last thing on your mind. And then guess who becomes the biggest critic of them all? You. That voice in your head says, there's no hope. God is not for you. He's not here. He doesn't care. Friends, he does. John Wooden, 
the late great coach of UCLA basketball, coached for over 30 years. He won 10 national championships and is arguably the, the greatest coach of all time. But before every season, before all those championships, he did one thing. He started his practices, his, his season with one drill. He taught his players how to put on socks and tie their shoes. Greats like Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the best players to ever grace a basketball court, he made them put on socks and taught them how to tie their shoes. Why? He says this, it is the little details that coaches must take advantage of because it's the little details that make the big things come about. Oh, you want to know, you want to know how the big rocks in life are moved. You want to know how hope comes to your doorstep, how joy comes into your heart. You cannot white-knuckle life. But what you can do is put your life upon Jesus through your prayer. It's a sort of spiritual umbilical cord. You want life? You've got to be connected. I, the New Testament is, has myriads of exhortations to pray. Nine, more often than not, Paul commands his people to pray before he commands them to do anything else. There's a reason for that. Because God hears you. He knows your predicament. And he will answer your call. It may not come in the ways you want. And it may not come in the time you want. But what is good for you will come. Because you are beloved. Rely on God's spirit through prayer. This is the call, friends. Just hold on a little while longer. Hope and help is on the way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the many ways you intervene on our behalf. Thank you for all the many ways you work behind the scenes. Just when we think you aren't present, Father, that's when you are most active. Remind us of the hope that is to come. Remind us that this season is more than gifts, more than all the good things that Christmas brings, but it is about a child who was born unto us. Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen.